How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're all ready to study the word this evening. We do this to make sure that we are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, so that we can uh, have the Holy Spirit empowering our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have this time to come together this evening. We continue to pray for our missionaries. We pray especially for Jeff Phipps as uh, he's down in Brazil now and representing this congregation as they're teaching with DM2. Pray for Jim Myers and the others that are with them. Father, we continue to pray, too, for Brett Nasworth as he was unable to go because he's recovering from uh, malaria. We pray that his recovery will continue to uh uh, take place and that he will be strengthened. Father, we pray too for George Meisinger and for Chafer Seminary. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, guide and direct our thinking tonight as we focus on your word, continuing to investigate, uh, to understand what you have revealed to us that we might uh, learn to think as you would have us to think, to reflect upon the world around us from a biblical viewpoint, and that we might continue the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 16. And tonight we're going to get into an interesting uh, topic. We touched on some last time. But it's interesting that this obscure passage, and trust me, a lot of people get to a passage like this where Paul is basically giving shout-outs to a lot of people that he knew back when uh, from different places in the Roman Empire, his travels, and people he knew that were in the church at Rome, and they think that there's not a whole lot here. It reminds me of something that happened last Saturday at the picnic. When you walk around anywhere in the rural Texas, you will see here and there, if you're looking, these small little disturbed areas of the ground that indicate a fire ant bed. If it's rained recently, then they will try to get above the water and they'll build up the mound a little bit. But a lot of times you just don't really see it until you kick it or step in it and all of a sudden thousands of ants come boiling out of the uh, out of the nest and up onto your legs and stinging you, and it's really not a pleasant experience. There are some passages in Scripture that are sort of like that. They don't seem to have a whole lot on the surface, but you kick them around a little bit, and all of a sudden you find that there's a lot of discussion and a lot of use of these passages in different debates. And the debate that goes on in relation to several verses here at the beginning of chapter 16 has to do with the roles, uh, has to do with gender roles, which is a timely topic if you're living in Houston, Texas. So tonight we're going to look at Aquila and Priscilla and women in ministry. But to introduce this, we're going to go back to a chart I started developing last week that 
illustrates a problem that we have among evangelical Christians today. And the column on the left has to do with the unbelievers, an individual who's just totally, totally influenced by the pagan culture around them. And they start off at the bottom. There's that, this is the foundation. At the top, we see uh, behavior, how a person behaves, uh, what they think about law, what they think about politics, and how they would implement or shape policy. In the second column, or that, that's the top layer. I need to change that terminology a little bit. I'll, I'll explain it. I haven't had time to really refine it too much, but I'm thinking this thing through. That's the area which we ta- where we engage in conversation with people, where we engage in debates. Like uh, I was handed tonight uh, an editorial that was written by Scott Wall, who's the pastor of uh, Magnolia Bible Church. And Scott Wall is, for those of you who know, he's the son of Joe Wall, who used to be the pastor of Spring Branch Community Church down here. I've known Joe most of my adult life, and I've known Scott since he was in diapers just about. And uh, he wrote an excellent uh, editorial here entitled, To Mayor Anise Parker, quote, you are wrong, unquote. But see, what, he's, what happens is, just looking at that, is a discussion on policy, on law and, and politics. And how you approach this from a, as a believer is going to differ. But it flows out of what takes place at that bottom story in each one of these columns. So this area at the bottom has to do with your view of ultimate reality, what philosophers call metaphysics. What goes beyond the physical? Other people, there's a Latin word called, or a Greek word called ontology, means the same thing. Uh, and it has to do with, with the, the essence of something from the Greek word ontos, the, the, the participle for a me, for being, and logos for st- the study of something. And ontology is a word you don't throw around too much. Most of you probably lo- first learned that word or were exposed to it. In about seventh grade biology, when you were erroneously taught that ontology recapitulates phylogeny. How many of you all remember that? One or two people. That was a Darwinian doctrine that the form of the fetus goes through the same processes and morphology of, of evolution. So when you have... Uh, you know, the, as the fetus grows, it looks kind of like a uh, little tadpole and then like a guppy and then on and on like that. So that was their little catchphrase that on, that would impress everybody that ontology recapitulates phylogeny. So um, ontology has to do with being. It's the same word as the word for metaphysics. And now we're going to get into this a little later on because it's important to understand ontology when you talk about gender roles. So you start with your ultimate view of reality, which is metaphysics. Uh, This also relates, for those of you who've heard it, of the uh, ontological argument for God. Okay? I'm not going to go there tonight. I wrote a master's thesis on it. I'm sick of the subject 25 years later. So we start off with metaphysics. And metaphysics tells us what we think about ultimate reality. What we build on that then as a result, if we're consistent, 
is our understanding of where we get knowledge, how we get knowledge, and what the ultimate authority for truth or knowledge is in the world. Once we ascertain the nature of knowledge and truth, is truth absolute or is truth relative or is truth somewhere in between, then this leads to values. Values. What do we value? What are our priorities? What do we value in terms of the structure of society? It affects our norms and our ethics. Uh, what we think about marriage. I read a statistic this last week that the number of marriages uh, is declined to its lowest level in the U.S. ever, and that's because people just aren't getting married anymore. That's not important to a lot of people. They just want to shack up, and that's it. So we have values uh, and, then, and our norms and our standards and our ethics, and then out of that comes behavior. Out of that comes our understanding of law, what should be encapsulated in law, what shouldn't be encapsulated in law, and uh, that relates to politics and policy as well. So that's the structure. And most of the time when we get involved in political arguments with people, it's always up just usually the top layer. Sometimes we might dip down into the second layer, but that's as far as we go. But the real issue takes place down here. And for the believers, I pointed out last time, we have to go back to our ultimate authority, which has to do with God, and that knowledge of truth comes from God. Now, if you don't have a biblical God, if you have a pantheistic or a polytheistic concept of God, then that's going to dictate a different understanding of knowledge and truth. If you have no God whatsoever as an atheist or you're just not sure and you're confused and you're agnostic, then that's going to change things as well. So if you uh, fiddle with these dials in that bottom layer, it's going to change everything that gets built on top of it. Uh, when it comes to knowledge and truth, if there's no biblical view of God, there's no, and by that I mean a Judeo-Christian view of a personal infinite God. If we do not have a Judeo-Christian view of a personal infinite creator God, I'm going to add creator to that, then knowledge and truth become relative. This affects then your norms and your standards, things of that nature. So when we come along and we talk about marriage, if marriage is no longer something instituted by God, which is the third column over here, you have a strong view of God. God is the creator. He created not only the physical world, but the norms and standards that should govern the, the world, i.e., that is righteousness, then uh, that leads to a view of absolute truth and absolute knowledge, and therefore value should be in conformity to God's, to God's character. So from a biblical viewpoint, starting with a strong view of God, we have a strong view of truth as absolute and of knowledge as certain. In the far left column, you have knowledge and truth become relative to the creature, not the creator. The creature determines what is true. The creature determines what the absolutes are. And so that can change from culture to culture. And as we've seen in its most recent iteration in what is called multiculturalism, this means that every culture's values are equally uh, equally significant and equally valuable. And so whether you are a 
uh, head-hunting cannibal down in the rainforest or whether you are uh, an elite graduate of Harvard, no matter what your values are, they're really equal. And so nobody should ever condemn somebody else's values. They're all, they're all good. So if you are a perverted, homosexual, transvestite uh, that uh, enjoys young children, then your values are equal to the person who is the most ethical, moral, in terms of all of his sexual mores. So you can't distinguish between those. Now, what kind, if, if, that's your, if that's your concept of truth and that's your concept of, of, of uh, right and wrong, that shapes your values, how's that going to shape your political theory? So political theory, uh, nobody's ever taught this to our mayor or she refuses to acknowledge it. Political theory is essentially always goes back to a religious position so that even secular atheism, secular humanism, as it was uh, declared by the United States Supreme Court in a decision in 1973, even secular humanism is, in effect, they said, a religion. So everything grows out of religion because everything grows out of your view of ultimate reality, and that's not something you can prove in a science laboratory, but you have to assume it and believe it. It's all based upon faith. So you're, when, when it comes to this issue that we're facing in Houston, which has to do with uh, gender confusion and, and creating laws that established that somebody asked me right before we came up, so what, what's, the, what's the underlying issue here? And as, I, as it's been explained to me from those who are promoting it, they want to have equal access to their own restrooms. So I pointed out last time that, that uh, these decisions, social policy, have economic consequences. This, this gets put into effect then that means that every building, every business, every McDonald's, every church, although they say at first that this doesn't apply to churches, is going to have to have a bathroom for the trannies. And maybe two, because the, the, the men that think they're women aren't really welcome by normal men in a male restroom. The women don't want them in their restroom. So they're, the, the men who think they're women aren't made to feel comfortable and welcome by either men or women. And either, so you have to have one for the restroom for the men who think they're women. But the women who think they're men aren't welcomed by them either. So then you have to have another restroom. So if you follow this out logically, it just leads to, to mass confusion and silliness. And this relates to an extremely small minority. A recent study that I, I saw indicated that no more than 3% of the population has a gender identification problem. That includes male homosexuals, female lesbians, and the, the, the transgender uh, types that are, that are really confused. But the transgenders are about a half of one of those percent. So 2.5% are just have problems with one form of homosexuality or the other. Half a percent, so this is really the, 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 the end hairs on the dog's tail are wagging the rest of the dog. And th this is, has enormous economic, economic consequences, but it boils down to the fact that we don't have a, a God, a creator God, who can speak to absolutes 
and say that, yes, there are these absolute biblical kinds that are not, uh, that, that, that don't yield to confusion. A male is a male, female is a female, and the reason you have gender confusion is ultimately because of sin. It's always interesting that, that when issues like this come up, it's always the Christians that become the bad guy. Or I've been I've read some that Orthodox Jews have have very successful ministries to help homosexuals straighten out their gender confusion. You never hear about it. It's not politically correct. So the press is never going to tell you, but you can get out and you can find out about this. There are a number of Christian ministries. There was one in Connecticut that I became aware of about uh, right before we moved back down here, and the the man had grown up in a homosexual culture, and uh, was very very involved in all the perversions. He he became a believer. Eventually, he got uh, straightened out as a result of his Christian growth, and married, has a couple of kids, happy family, and developed a tremendous ministry helping. Homosexuals come out of that lifestyle. If you don't believe there are absolutes, then you just think that's something that's horrible. So all of this starts off with your view of God and your view of creation, that God created these kinds, that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, and they're distinct from the animals. So you can't draw analogies from the animals uh, to man because this thing called the image of God is, is very different. Well, this not only affects the gender confusion in terms of sexual identity, but it also affects roles and how we understand the role of men and the role of women in the family, in a marriage, in society, and in the church. That God created men and women equally as image bearers. In Genesis 1, and 27, God says, let us create man in our image, Male and female. So both men and women are equally fully in the image of God. That means that ontologically, see, I knew I would, you had to prepare for this. Ontologically, men and women are equal in their being. They're both equally and fully in the image of God. But God created men to be men and women to be women. And he created souls that were different. Human Male souls and female souls are designed for different roles, just as female bodies and male bodies are created for different functions. And this is something that's, that is a, a very inconvenient truth for evolutionists and for uh, those who want to have complete uh, role, uh, role reversal and role interchangeability. And these ideas started getting promoted in the late 19th century as Western civilization shifted from a theistic foundation and a Christian, Judeo-Christian heritage to a evolutionary foundation. And so by the early part of the, of the 20th century, these things were already being talked about among the, uh, those who were deeply involved in the progressive agenda and it was way behind the scenes, but there were people in the intellectual elites of the early 20th century that were already engaging in this as an agenda. 
And this did not really come to fruition in terms of uh, popular culture until you got into the 60s and the development of of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s, the development of the uh, radical feminist movement in the 60s, all had these different things as part of their agenda. This is when you had the rise of the gay rights movement and at the very beginning back in the 60s, and all of these things were related together. And so they're all part of pagan thought over here that their behavior in terms of gender confusion, their behavior in terms of role reversal and role identification between men and women all impacted uh, laws. They, they became very activistic in trying to get uh, congressmen uh, to, to uh, pass laws. Uh, it affected uh, politics. It affected policy. It affected what was taught in the college classroom and how literature was was um, developed. I was talking to a young man from our congregation this last week who ended up dropping an English class because he had made some references to God in an English paper that he had turned in, and the professor just scribbled all over his paper, there is no God, this is all nonsense, and you know, and just vented all over his paper from his hostile hostile atheism. And this is what's normative today in in most college classrooms is the especially in liberal arts. Liberal arts is much more dangerous than the science classroom. In in history classes, in sociology classes, psychology classes, and especially English classes. I had a double major in college. I had a history and English major, and I saw this many years ago when I was in college, that that was, that was just horrendous what was coming across from most of the teachers in the liberal arts department. So all this goes back to their view of God. Now, the reason I'm getting into this is because the area where this is a uh, uh, this fire ant bed of, of discussion focuses on these these issues in, in uh, uh, three verses here that talk about women in ministry. And this has become a hotbed issue in evangelicalism over the last 50 years because the Christians always seem to um, reflect the trends of the culture. And I remember in 1975, I was involved with uh, a couple of other young men who were uh, going to go to Dallas Seminary, and we met every week or so with the pastor over at Spring Branch Community Church, and he talked about a lot of different issues that we would be facing when we went to seminary. And one of the first ones he mentioned was this whole issue of whether or not women should be admitted into seminary, whether women should be, what kind of ministry women should have in the local church. And this was particularly important, and it had a financial edge. See, social policy always affects finances. And I keep repeating that because there's this movement that has been around for at least uh, 20 years in the Republican Party that you have certain conservatives who say we were conservative economically, but we're not conservative uh, socially. This is also a libertarian line that that we can let's let's forget about when life begins. Let's forget about uh, the homosexual marriage, gay marriage. Uh, let's forget about all these other social issues, because that's not relevant. Let's just talk about, about money. Well, in 1970, in the mid-70s, schools like Dallas Seminary that wanted to 
allow students who were, most of these guys were Vietnam vets, to come to seminary on uh, the GI Bill were being, the school was being pressured by the government that if you don't change your admission policies and have women as students, then your federal aid for any incoming student is going to dry up. So money talks. And so it wasn't long before Dallas Seminary came up with a new program. The only program they had until about 1974 to 75 was the Master of Theology program, four-year Master of Theology. Well, they introduced something called a Master of Arts of Biblical Studies, which was a two-year master's degree, and you could enter that. It was just in summer school, and over a period of three or four summers, you could get your two-year MA program, and that was open to women. Well, by the time I was in my second year of seminary, women were now coming to take their MABS classes, and there were some of those classes that were the same as the THM classes. So you see this gradualism that developed. And then by the early 80s, when Dallas Seminary had engaged in a huge uh, capital expenditure program and building a lot of new buildings, uh, because other seminaries had started providing some competition, the number of students that applied for the THM slots at Dallas were fewer than the slots available. Back in the 70s, they would get six to eight times as many applicants for each slot that was open for a THM student. Now you had 220 applicants for 230 slots. What happens to your quality control? All of a sudden, you need more students because you've got to pay off your capital debt. Well, maybe we ought to open up the THM program to women. And that was a factor. It wasn't the only factor, but it was a factor. Money talks. Things like this happened, and it was, and there was a lot of social pressure taking place as, as well. And so all of a sudden you had people going back and revising their exegesis of Scripture. And so a lot of controversy took place and uh, during during this particular time, and Dallas generally kept a pretty strong line, although they did open up the THM program and later the PhD program to women students, they kept a strong line that, that women were not to be pastors or, or to teach men. And so they continue to publish articles written by Wayne House, who's got, if you want to investigate some of this, Wayne's book on the role of women in ministry is an excellent book, and there have been several others that have been uh, published by Dallas grads dealing with the, this particular issue. This is foundational. Now, these, remember I talked about the, the fire ant bed. It doesn't look very, very significant until you kick it. Well, that's what happens here is last week we looked at these first two verses talking about Phoebe, our sister, who's a servant of the church in Centuria. So I said this is the word uh, diakonos in the feminine form, and so there are those who have who had sold out to what is known as evangelical feminism who would come to Romans 16.1 and say, see, they had deaconesses in the early church. And that's a misuse of both history as well as language. The, the idea of a deacon as an official church position in the leadership position in the sense that we have it today was, was unheard of in the early church. It was a servant position, not a position of authority or a position of teaching or a position of leadership, as I pointed out last time. So 
Uh, Romans 16, 1 and 2 was part of that. I pointed out last time that another aspect of this was the noun that's used down at the end of uh, Romans 16, 2, that Phoebe uh, should be taken care of and helped out because she'd been a helper of many and of myself also. And so there have been numerous scholarly articles arguing back and forth on the significance of this word prostatis. And this is in the feminine form. It's a nominative feminine singular. And in the feminine form, it has the idea of a patron or a benefactor. The related noun, the cognate noun, prostatase, with an eta sigma at the end, which you would transliterate as an es, a long e, that is the masculine form, which means ruler or leader. And so there's been a huge amount of, of ink spilled on this particular debate issue. So you kick this little uh, dirt on the ground here, and all of a sudden you realize there's a lot more to this, and all these uh, fire ants start bubbling up out of the ground, and all these theologians start arguing about this. And then we come to the next set of verses in Romans 16, 3 through 5, talking about Priscilla and Aquila. Now, this is important because, well, they're always mentioned together. Priscilla's name uh, is is almost always mentioned uh, first. Of the six times that they're mentioned, she's mentioned first four of those six times. Some have tried to say that this shows that she was more the leader. And, you know, a lot of stuff is read into this. It's probably one of two things. Either she was more involved in terms of helping Paul or she probably came from a, and this is the most likely explanation, she probably came from a higher social status than her husband did, and so she would have been listed first. So they're mentioned in um, uh, many times, and their names always come up when you, you um, hear discussion related to the role of women in ministry because here's Priscilla who is mentioned a number of times. The fact that Paul mentions her a number of times and had such a strong relationship with him indicates that the the liberal position you often hear that Paul was a misogynist is just not true. He mentions a number of women in in this particular list. In fact, if we look at this whole uh, the, the chapter here, we see that there are 24 names that, uh, beginning here in verse 3, there are 24 names, uh, 24 people who are named and two people who are not named. Of the 26 uh, total that are mentioned, nine of them are women. Paul is commending nine of them as women. That's approximately a third of them. Paul had a very high view of women. He was not arguing for what he says about women doesn't come out of a cultural background. It isn't influenced by his uh, Pharisaism, and it, as we'll see, and it wasn't influenced by the Greek culture. It's influenced by God's inspiration and by the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1. So Priscilla and Aquila are uh, indicated here as his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And in this section, we have several uh, places where you have in Christ mentioned and in the Lord mentioned. For example, in verse 8, greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. In verse 11, uh, greet those who are the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Also in verse 13 and verse 22, you have this phrase in the Lord. It seems that it is used 
interchangeably with the phrase in Christ. What Paul is saying is that they are carrying out their ministry for Christ uh, together. They were partners in ministry. And in verse 4, he goes on to uh, praise them because they had risked their lives for Paul. And so he singles them out, uh, indicating how how much he appreciates their ministry now back in Rome at this particular time. And he expressed his gratitude to them uh, for the way they had worked with him and also mentions the church that is in their house. Now, in in in. First Corinthians, he also mentions them. They traveled a lot, and they seemed they always had a group of believers that met in their house as as a church. Now, what we know about them from Scripture is that uh, is that they were married. They were believers who were originally from Rome, although Aquila is originally from uh, Pontus in Asia Minor, which is uh, which is modern Turkey. And somewhere they, they met and they married. They're from a Jewish background. And so they had uh, become believers at some point uh, or at a point as a result of Paul's ministry, I believe. Her name, uh, sometimes she's mentioned as Prissa. This is a, uh, actually Prissa is the more formal form of the name and the diminutive was Priscilla. Luke usually calls her Priscilla, but Paul usually refers to her uh, as uh, as Prissa. So they had a uh, important relationship with Paul. Aquila, which is the Latin word for eagle, was a tent maker. That was his profession, as was Paul. He had settled in Rome, but then they were forced to leave when there was a uh, some riots in Rome, according to Acts eighteen two that were uh, stated to be by, by Claudius because the Christians were debating this person called uh, Crestus, which is probably a misspelling for Christ. And so all the Jews were uh, expelled from Rome under, under Emperor Claudius. That brought them to uh, Corinth, and that is where they met Paul, and they came together and developed a friendship and worked together and had their tent-making business together. And then they continued to follow him. They went with him. Uh, later on, they followed him to Ephesus. But when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians uh, to them in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he mentions that they had, had, they had a church meeting in their house uh, in Corinth. Now, they come up because of this particular verse mentioned in Acts 18.26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. The he there refers to Apollos. Apollos was a a Greek Jew who was uh, speaking out in the synagogue, but he didn't understand the gospel clearly. And Aquila and Priscilla heard him and the synagogue, and they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, one of the arguments that you hear from the feminist evangelical side is that, well, this is, isn't Priscilla teaching him the Bible? Well, let's look at the terminology here. It says they explained to him the way of God. This is the word ektithemi, 
which means to explain something or to expose something. It is not a synonym for the word didasco, which means to formally teach or instruct someone. Didasco is usually used to refer to a group instructional situation where you have a recognized teacher giving instruction to others. What we see with Priscilla and Aquila is that they're sitting around the coffee table at home uh, having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever they drank at that time, and they're having a dialogue with with Apollos and saying, you know, we really enjoyed your message, you did a great job here, but have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And then generally through dialogue and question and answer, leading him through an understanding of the Messiahship of Jesus. Uh, Priscilla isn't sitting there taking out her Bible and saying, okay, now we're going to have Bible class and I'm going to teach you about the Messiah. It's not a lecture. So that's a very different type of scenario, and it's not legitimate to go to Acts 18 to try to pull out of this an example of a woman teaching a man. The key passage for understanding this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. So let's turn in our Bibles here and take a look at this passage. This is a very important passage because it teaches that there are different roles in the church just as there are different roles in the home. And a lot of times this has not been properly understood. Now what happens is Paul is having to deal with some problems in the congregation in Ephesus. Timothy is the pastor in Ephesus, and so he is encouraging Timothy to deal with various problems in the church from those who are uh, getting involved in teaching false doctrine. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So he's got to straighten things out. And he says there are those who have, verse 6 of chapter 1, there are those who uh, have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law. There's a use of our word didaskalos, and that indicates a formal teaching position, as it does all through the pastorals. It's not some sort of sitting around the coffee table and having a discussion about what the Scripture means. It's a it's a formal teaching uh, teaching position, and then uh, so Paul needs to give them uh, needs to give Timothy some instruction on some priorities in, when it comes to the con- congregation. And in chapter two, he says, uh, therefore. If, I exhort, first of all, that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So we have a little section there dealing with with the importance of prayer. And then he comes to verse 8, and he says, Therefore, I want the men. This flows directly out of his discussion of prayer, which covered verses 1 through 7. He says, I therefore desire the men. And this is the Greek word, honor not anthropos. We have our English word anthropology, the study of human beings. Anthropos is a broad word that refers to not just males, but refers to mankind or humanity, the human race. It can refer to just men, but usually it has a broader sense, including both male and female. But the Greek word on air means male as opposed to female. 
The word for female is gune, which can refer to a woman or to a wife. So he says here, I want the males in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Does that mean women shouldn't pray? No, he's not addressing that. He's talking about the order, the, the orderly way of worship when the body of believers comes together. He wants the men to be in this leadership position, and they're the ones who lead in terms of prayer. Lifting up holy hands is not the charismatic view that you lift up your hands, and somehow that makes you a little more holy, and your prayers will get a little higher toward heaven. Uh, holy hands, in, the word there indicates sanctification. You're in fellowship, okay? That, that, that's the idea there, that they're not unholy hands, they are, oh, they're, they're sanctified uh, without wrath and dissension. See, that's the positive is you're in fellowship, you're in right relationship to God in terms of uh, experiential sanctification, and the negative is that, that there's not mental attitude sin in the thought life of the leaders of the church. Then he says in verse 9, Likewise, or in the same manner. So first he addresses the males in the congregation, then he addresses the women. And he, he's not addressing everything the men and women should do, but he's picking on these topics because apparently there was some confusion or some areas of disobedience in, in, in these particular areas. And so he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. So for the women, it was a matter of how they dressed when they came together for worship. They needed to dress modestly, and they needed to not dress in a way that would uh, provoke men in terms of mental attitude, sins, creating lust, or anything of that nature. And probably it was not so much that as it was uh, that the more affluent in the congregation would not dress in a way that would overemphasize their affluence and their and their prosperity as opposed to those who were who were poor, some who would come might be even be slaves, and so they should not make an issue out of their status in life. they should dress modestly and discreetly and then he says, so instead of focusing on how you dress. It's not going to be a style. So I remember when I first went to seminary, I went to a couple of churches in North Dallas, and I was just amazed at the style show. It was just phenomenal and very fluent part of Dallas and how the, the, the women and men dressed. I had just never really noticed that from my background. So they, were, they really were, it was like a fashion show every Sunday morning. Instead, the women were to focus on good works, that is, walking by the Spirit and the production of divine good in their life, as befits a woman making a claim to godliness. As I pointed out before, the word godliness is a Greek word, eusebeia, which indicates a spiritual life. Godliness is an English word that, that comes from God-likeness, being like God. It's emphasizing character. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says we're being conformed to the image of Christ, Christ-likeness or God-likeness. So that's what Eusebia uh, means. It's not really piety. That's one of those funny little religious words that people focus on. It has to do with your spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And then in verse 11, he, he gives a command. It is, he says, let a woman quietly receive instruction. So it's a present active imperative, indicates that this is to be a 
standard operating procedure. This is the normative expression of the role of women in a local church. They are to receive instruction. Now, the word here that's translated receive instruction is the word montano. Montano is related to the Greek noun mathete, which is, or mathetes, which is the word for a disciple, someone who is a learner, someone who is a student. So they are to do this in a way that is quiet. Uh, they are to have, Paul says, women are to keep silent in the church. Now, that's not an absolute command because also in Corinthians, he talks about women praying how they should pray in the local assembly, under what conditions they could pray. And so they could pray and they could engage in some other vocal activities, but it wasn't teaching the word. And so he's laying this out that in when it comes to the time of instruction from the word that uh, the women were not to be involved in that. Uh, they were to instead be learning with submissiveness, obedience to the word, listening with a view to applying the word in their life. And then he goes on to uh, explain this. Why does he say this? Verse 12, but, or actually this would probably be better translated as a, as a now in, in the Greek, indicating that he's moving to the next level in developing his thought. He says, now I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That word quiet is the same word that we have back here to quietly receive instruction. So he, re, he, he repeats that. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the fact that women are not to speak in, in the church. And it's that sense of being quiet as opposed to interrupting, as opposed to expressing their opinions. Not that men should be doing that either, but he's focusing this on, because this apparently had become an issue in the Ephesian uh, congregation. So he's reminding them of what the standard protocol is at all times and all places. So he uses these two words, to teach or to exercise authority. Now, what's that little word in between those two, uh, those two infinitives? It's the word or. Now, that's an important word. And one of the few to- first times I really recognize that something really stands out in your mind is that when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, I'm telling a lot of student stories tonight. When I was a student at Dallas Seminary, this, of course, was a hot topic along with Calvinism and the extent of the atonement and pre-trib rapture and a few other things. But this was a hot topic. And my senior year, uh, the first woman was invited to speak from the pulpit at the chapel, at Schaefer Chapel at Dallas Seminary. Her name was Elizabeth Elliott. Her husband, Jim Elliott, was one of the five men who were martyred down on that sandbar in Ecuador by the Alca Indians. And so because she had written their story in three different uh, installments, three different books. One of the the main one is called Through Gates of Splendor, which I recommend. It's a tremendous story to learn about. It happened in the late 50s. And uh, so she had a measure of celebrity status in the evangelical world. She wrote two or three books on women's ministry. And she got up in the pulpit at Dallas Seminary and she said, now I understand that, th- that I'm the first woman to address the student body up here, and I, I just want you to understand that I recognize the proper role, scriptural role of women. 
and that I am up here under the authority of these men because Scripture says that a woman is not to teach and exercise authority over a man. And Tommy Ice was sitting next to me, and he put an elbow in my ribs. It's our exercise authority, not and. She misquoted the scripture. Doesn't say to teach authority and exercise, I mean, teach and exercise authority, but it's to do, you can't do either one. And she just misquoted, that's a bad place to misquote scripture in the pulpit at Schaefer Seminary. So, the first thing that Paul says is that a woman is not to teach. The word there is didasco, which means to teach publicly, to give instruction to several people. Uh, it's not used in a one-on-one situation. In fact, Ann Bowman, who was one of the first THM students to graduate from Dallas Seminary back in the, in the early 90s, wrote an article, a very well-done article, in Bibliotheca Sacra, the Dallas Seminary Theological Journal, called Women in Ministry. And she gives an excellent discussion of all these verbs and all these words, and she says the verb didasco and its cognates are the most common terms for teaching in the New Testament. The word refers almost exclusively to public instruction or teaching of groups. And notice that. It's public instruction or teaching of groups. It's a formal concept. It's not an informal one-on-one kind of having discussion uh, around a cup of coffee. In the New Testament, a teacher is one who systematically teaches or expounds the Word of God and who gives instruction in the Old Testament and apostolic teaching. That's an excellent definition of the term. It is a more formal, structured form of instruction. So women are, Paul says, I don't allow women to teach to give this kind of instruction. Secondly, he says, or to exercise authority over a man. Now, this is a grown-up male. This is why we have a policy in prep school that we draw a line roughly to the best we can. It's a small group, and lines change because of ages, and we have limited kids. But we draw a line roughly at puberty. We try to keep that line that that uh, that once a male child passes puberty, he's going to have male teachers in prep school and not women teachers. Under that, it's it's great, it's fine, and, but after that, women are not to have authority over a man or to teach a man. So this is the foundation for that. The word for exercising authority is an unusual word in Greek. It's authenteo. And it means to exercise or to have authority over someone else. That definition fits all six uses of the word in the New Testament. And again, Paul says, but they should remain quiet. And why does Paul say this? Some people today say, well, he's just giving, he's not giving a universal principle for the church. He's just addressing a specific problem in Ephesus. And, and so it only applied to that situation. Well, that's not, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, secondly, uh, others say that, well, he's just influenced by his culture. These are usually folks who don't believe in the inerrancy or infallibility of Scripture, and they say he, he came out of a pharisaical background where, like Orthodox uh, Judaism later on, men sat on one side of the synagogue, women sat on the other side of the synagogue, and the women were basically set, given a second-class status. Now, that's a problem. 
Because in, as I pointed out, if men and women are equally created in the image of God, then the women shouldn't, it's, it's a, it's a phony application to relegate women to a second class status. And Paul doesn't do that. Paul's argument for this doesn't come from the culture. It doesn't come because this is the way the Greeks do it or this is the way the Jews do it. It comes from God's order of creation. And he introduces this with that word for, which means uh, that he's explaining something, the Greek word gar, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Now, he's summarizing Genesis 2. Now, what, is he, what happens in Genesis 2? God first created man. Then he said, okay, I'm a, I want you to name all the animals. That's your, your first mission. Name all the animals. And so all the animals come trotting by Ab- uh, Adam, and he looks at them, and he says, well, there's a male and a female for every one of them. They all have a match. I don't have a match. What's going on? So God creates a need. He rec- gets Adam to the point where he recognizes that something's missing. And then God says, it's not good for the, the man, the male to be alone. So he created a what? A helper, an eighther, a helper. The only, only two people, class of people are identified as eighthers in the, in the Old Testament, women and God. So women, you know, feminists come along and say, well, being a helper is sort of a second-class role. Not when the only other classification of Atzer in the Bible is God. That elevates that role quite high. That's a, that's a significant statement. Women are have a role like God has as a helper. This isn't a second-class position. So Adam's created first, and Eve is created to be his helper in carrying out the mission that God gave him as the vicegerent over all of creation. And together they both have this role as image bearers. But then we had a little problem in Genesis chapter 3. The woman is deceived by Satan. There's a role reversal issue here. Satan goes after the woman in order to get her to start functioning as the leader. He figures out she's the weak spot, and so he goes after after her. And and Paul says it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. And what's important is that throughout Scripture, it's not Eve's sin that God makes the issue out of. It's Adam's sin. Adam was the one who was ultimately responsible. Romans 5.12 says that it's in Adam I'll die, not in Eve. So it is... Um, Adam that's the responsible one. When God showed up in the garden that that afternoon and started to ask where they were, he doesn't address the woman to explain what happened. He addresses the responsible party, the leader in the in the couple, the leader of the home. He addresses the man and says, what's happened, Adam? Because it was Adam's responsibility. He was the representative head uh, of the human race. So... Adam, Adam uh, was deceived. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived, and so this has something to do with why women have a different role than men do. Now we get into First Timothy two fifteen, and this is a difficult verse and one that challenges a lot of people. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children. Now, how? What in the world is going on here? 
we have to understand a couple of different words here. The word here for preserved is the word saved. But this isn't using sozo in a eternal salvation perspective. Remember the word saved can relate to justification, it can relate to sanctification, and it can relate to glorification. So we always have to define what does this relate to. So if this is talking about justification, we have a real problem because that means that we're almost like Mormons. Ladies, you can't go to heaven unless you have babies. Mm, I don't think that quite passes the smell test. So uh, is it talking about phase two, women shall be sanctified through the bearing of children? Not really, because the issue in phase two sanctification is what you have at the end of the verse, continuing in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So maybe this has something to do with the fact that, look at that verb. What tense is it? Future tense. This is talking about glorification. It's related to rewards. It's related to women are created to be the bearer of children within that divine viewpoint or divine, uh, uh, divine institution family. And they're the ones who, who are given that position, that role and responsibility, and that takes things to the next level in terms of training. So, so she's got a responsibility there, and that ultimately can relate to her rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. This is a long-term look. This isn't a short-term look. And so she's, it's talking about, and the question there with that they, is that talking about they, the women, or they, the children? And it could, it could be either one, but I think it's primarily talking about the women and that part of their sanctification is fulfilling part of their role as being a mother and bearing children. Now, does that mean that if a woman doesn't have a child or is incapable of having children that she can't realize that? Well, that's in God's hands, not in, in, not in your hands. It's, this is just one of the ways in which a woman realizes her fulfillment in life. It doesn't mean that if you don't have children that you don't uh, realize that. But all through this, what we're seeing is Paul arguing from this position that men have one role and women have another role. But see, going back to what I said at the very beginning, if you're coming at this, if you've never heard this before, or you're coming at this from an understanding of the culture, then, and your training in the background has come out of a no-biblical-God foundation, then when you get up to what you believe about the nature of men and women, it's going to be radically different over here under paganism than it is over here in terms of biblical thought. And so you're going to get out in the workplace, and there's going to be some sort of a conflict And you're going to have to decide, are you going to live your life and function under the policy of biblical truth or not? That's going to impact you in terms of how you view uh, co-workers, employees, or whatever, who, uh, in terms of same-sex marriage and gender confusion, and it's going to impact in terms of how you view the role of men and women. And this is hard in a pagan society because the pressure is on you to conform to the world and not to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is what happens to growing believers who have an incomplete thought progress 
or thought transformation is that when pressure comes, they're going to go towards the position of pragmatism. They're going to choose something that works rather than what's right. And this is what leads to a destruction of your spiritual life. I want to close with a story. I can't remember if I mentioned this last time or not, but if I did, I want to draw a different a little different application. The man in the church was telling me that if you work for the federal government, then if somebody comes in and they're transgender and you refer to them, let's say it's a man who thinks he's a woman, and if you refer to him as a he, then you're going to be written up and you may lose your job. And this works across the board in terms of many different government agencies. Now, what happens is the government is basically using vocabulary to change your thinking and to change your values. Because what happens after a while is you keep referring to this biological male who dresses like a woman as a she, and pretty soon what happens in terms of your norms and standards is you're beginning to think that, well, there's really not anything wrong with this. This is okay. He's a nice person. I don't want to be too judgmental. That's a value that you sucked in from the world. And so this really isn't too 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 bad. What's happened is that government policy is forcing a breakdown in your thought life and in your sense of biblical norms and standards, and you have just lost that battle within spiritual warfare and caved into the world. Rather than being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you're being forced or conformed into the world. This is just beginning, folks. Well, actually, it's just becoming really obvious. It's been going on for 20 or 30 years in a lot more subtle ways. Now it's becoming much more overt, and we're going to see churches and institutions attacked more and more from the left because they can't abide for people to think so radically different about men and women and the essence of families and society. And so we're going to see this 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 coming along in a lot of different ways. In fact, I gave Alan a letter that we received from uh, from an organization that is at the root of a lot of these attacks on the church just to remind religious leaders that there's a lot of things about politics you can't say from the pulpit, and you need to make sure that you don't say these things or you will c- cause great harm to come to your organization. little letter of intimidation. And so this is the kind of thing that we're going to see more and more of, uh, not to mention the kind of nonsense that our mayor came up with. So we have to make a decision. Are you really willing to stay the course? That's what discipleship is. All those things that Jesus teaches in Matthew about discipleship, are you willing to count the costs? Are you willing to make the sacrifice? Are you willing to give up what may be everything in your life? Because when it comes right down to it, the only thing that matters is your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's all that matters, then everything else may go away, and it may go away in our lifetime, and it may go away in the next decade. But the only thing that's going to give us the strength to handle those battles is the Word of God that's in our soul. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded about the fact that we have these these culture wars today that are uh, impacted by our view of reality, our view of you, our view of the scriptures, and and how we handle these battles is directly related to our uh, understanding of the authority of your word. And Father, we need to know your word. 
We need to know it inside and out, and it needs to be inside of us and part of our thinking because that's the only way we're going to truly be able to thread our way through the obstacles that the world system is putting in front of us. We're going to need to have a lot of wisdom. We're going to have to have an understanding of the tactics of the enemy, and we're going to need to understand uh, grace and the full uh, breadth and depth of your your revelation in order to be able to negotiate the, the battles that are coming our way. And we pray that you would give us the the strength and the fortitude to persevere no matter what comes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.